The title of this morning's message is Identity and Two Kinds of Wisdom. This morning I want to continue to minister from the book of James as we look at wisdom in light of our new identity. So again, we need to actually start with understanding what our true identity is actually like. James reveals his new identity in James chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 1, verse 18, and it says this. In the Young's literal translation, James 1, 1. James, of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, a servant. And the word there is bondservant. Uh, 1, 18. Of his, the Father's own will, begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So we, like James, are both bondservants of God and sons of God. These descriptions are meant to help us understand what happened to us when we believed into Jesus. John 1.12 says this, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. The word that's translated on is the Strong's word ice. It's pronounced ice. And this is what it says the definition is. It's a primary preposition to or into, indicating the point reached or entered of place, time, or figuratively purpose. I really like this definition because I think it better describes us as having moved from one place (laughs) into another place. People talk about believing on Jesus, and they're not really sure what that means. But if we actually translated it literally, they might better understand. We move from where we are into Jesus. It isn't that I believe Jesus exists (laughs) and nothing happens to me. It isn't like I believe the Queen of England is the Queen of England. I can believe that all day long and I will not become English. If I believe into Jesus, I become one with him. I'm changed. We believe into Jesus, literally. We go from the place of condemnation (laughs) because of our sin into the place of grace by faith in the finished works of Jesus. The word tells us that when we believe into Jesus, our Heavenly Father spiritually picks us up and moves us into the place of right standing with himself, apart from our performance. He literally takes us out of the kingdom of darkness and places us spiritually into the kingdom of his dear son. And we can see this in Colossians 1, verses 12 through 14. It says this, Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet, which means qualified, hath made us qualified to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. The Greek word for delivered paints a picture of being rescued from a mighty rushing water that is carrying somebody away against their will. And they have no ability to save themselves. When suddenly, (laughs) A strong arm reaches in and pulls them out. That's what that word is supposed to paint. When we see the word delivered, we're supposed to think, oh, somebody who had no power to save themselves, they were heading for death, and somebody who's mightier and stronger reaches in 
and pulls them out of where they used to be and puts them in a safe place. That's what being rescued or delivered is in this particular verse. We have already been pulled out of the power of darkness by the strong arm of the Lord, and then we are carried by the Lord Jesus Christ into himself, into the kingdom of his dear son. Verse 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Again, the word redemption is meant to paint a picture for us. <laughs> we say, oh yeah, forgiveness of sins, and it, it means so much more than that. The word redemption always points us to a price paid to secure another's freedom, which is what Jesus did for us. He paid the wages of our sin, which was death. And in dying, he freed us from the power of all other masters. The picture painted by the word bondservant is related to this word redemption. A bondservant is someone who has been purchased out of a slave market. He had no power to be his own person. He thought I did. He was wrong. <laughs> and he has been delivered, rescued, taken out of the power that kept him a slave. And he was delivered from all the other masters that were in his life. The power of sin, the power of self, and the power of Satan. Now, to the natural ear, the word bondservant sounds like a bad thing. <laughs> That's because we didn't live during the time of James. During that time, having a loving, kind, wise, generous, and rich landowner purchase you and take responsibility to provide you with everything you need for the rest of your life <laughs> was a dream come true. Yes, the bondservant was to do that which made the master happy, but a good master makes for a good bondservant <laughs> who delights in doing his master's bidding. This is what Jesus did for us. He purchased us out of the slave market by paying our sin debt through taking our sin into death. And then he rose from the grave to prove that sin had no power over him or us because we have believed into him. So spiritually speaking, he took us with him into death and then raised us up into the very life of God where we were also born of him. So not only are we happy bond servants who are free from all other masters, but we are also reborn as literal sons of God. That's a big deal. We are literally sons of God. When you say son of God, people think Jesus. That's a good thing to think. <laughs> son of God, just like Jesus. That's our true identity. Too many Christians still believe that they are only forgiven sinners, even though scripture blatantly and repeatedly calls us saints. Holy ones, that's what the word means. We are holy ones. We are without sin in our spirit and we're without committed sin being held against us by God. Yes, human beings, saved people commit sin. It's never held against us because if it was held against us, he'd have to kill us again. <laughs> so he never holds it against us. That's why I love the song we sang earlier. All my sin is nailed to the cross, not just in part. And so much of the church thinks God has forgiven me up until right now. 
And now it's up to me to keep my righteousness righteous <laughs> by walking it out. And if I mess up, then I've messed up my righteousness. God said, that's a bad plan. You will never stay righteous that way. You have to have it as a gift. You have to have somebody do for you what you could not do yourself. You needed somebody to pull you out of the power of sin and out of the dominion of darkness and set you and make you free. So we are holy ones. We are without sin. And our sins that are now committed are not held against us by God. But human beings will almost always <laughs> hold our sins against us. <laughs> which is good to know <laughs> because God does expect us to make right that which we have done wrong. It's not okay for us to act like the old person <laughs> who didn't have any control over themselves. God says, no, you are a brand new identity. You are a brand new person. You are a son of the living God and you can walk just like Jesus. I've made you sin free so you can be sin free. I didn't make you sin free so you could sin all you want. <laughs> I made you sin free so that you never have to bow to another master called sin. Because the truth is who we are changes what we want. As sons of God, we will very quickly find out sin doesn't make me happy. <laughs> So he made us sin-free so that we could be sin-free. So God will not hold our sins against us. And the truth is, it's because he can't hold our sins against us. Sounds funny. Sounds funny. What do you mean God can't hold my sins against me? Well, is God righteous? Is he just? Is it just to hold our sins against Jesus and us? No. That's why 1 John 1, 9 says, it's not just if he doesn't forgive us. Because he, our forgiveness, our removal of our sin is based on what Jesus has done and not what we have done. So when we do sin, are there consequences for actions? Absolutely. Law of sowing and reaping. <laughs> Sow to the flesh. You only get what flesh provides, which is not the life of God. It produces corruption and destruction. So when we sin, yeah, we're going to find we don't like the fruit that that produces in our life. But the penalty for sin is not a curse or sickness or job loss or the death of a loved one. But so many people think it is. The penalty for sin is always death. But in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, our death penalty has already been paid once for all sin. Now, this does not mean there are no consequences. <laughs> when people hear the message of grace, they're like, yeah, but what about when you sin? <laughs> Still righteous in our spirit. He's made us sin free so that we can outwardly live sin free. It doesn't work the other way around. <laughs> you can try to be sin free every day of your life. It will never make you sin free. That has to be something that's done for you and to you. So the consequences of sowing to the flesh are ugly. <laughs> but it's never the punishment of God. It's not God being mad and saying, this is what you get for disobeying. That is not who our father is. He never treats us like small, naughty children. 
He treats us like responsible adults. Yes, we are responsible for our actions. Our actions provide what happens in our life. But God never punishes us. We simply reap what we sow in the natural realm. So when we sin against someone, yes, we should always, always, always try to make it right with them. We are to live in peace as much as it relies on us. <laughs> Some people don't want peace. <laughs> but when we sin after we believe into Jesus, it just means that our sin no longer separates us from God. That's who we used to be, somebody who was separated from God because of the presence and power of sin. It's not who we are. Sin still brings forth the power of corruption and destruction. Sometimes you hear baby Christians in the message of grace go, it doesn't matter how I live, God still loves me. Well, he loved you when you were a sinner. <laughs> he doesn't love you less now that you're a saint. However, he has a much better life for us because he's given us a much better identity to live out of. James also tells believers, it does matter how we live because how we live produces what's in our life. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 13, in the Weymouth translation, it says this. Let no one say when passing through a trial, my temptation is from God. For God is incapable of being tempted to do evil. And he himself tempts no one. But when a man is tempted, it is his own passions that carry him away and serve as bait. Then the passion conceives and becomes the parent of sin, and sin, when it is fully matured, gives birth to death. I like these verses in this translation because it pulls all temptations into one pot, so to speak. <laughs> we looked at the diverse temptations that we fall into, the pressures of this world. But then we looked also at the temptations that are within, the pressures from the soul. And God says, really, they're all in the same pot. They're all tempting you to step outside of your new identity and act like a sinner instead of like the saint that you are. You are a son of God sent to rule and reign on this earth. That's the life he wants us to have. So, so many of the church thinks God's punishing them. <laughs> that this sickness came because I did X, Y, or Z. That may be related. You may not take care of yourself. You might get sick. Is God punishing you with sickness? No. If you go gambling and lose all your money for the rent, is God punishing you by making you sick? No. <laughs> but they try to make these associations that God somehow is responsible for the temptations, temptations being the desire to do something wrong and trials and tribulations in this natural world. If he's not responsible for one, he's not responsible for the other one. Most of the church does not believe that. They really do think that God is going to send you a sickness because you were naughty. And if you don't take care of yourself, you might get sick. Is that from God? No, that's from the natural sowing and reaping. The outward circumstances that tempt us to doubt and fear and the inward temptations to do something we know we shouldn't are not brought to us by God. None of the temptations, none of the trials come from God's hand. God doesn't need to send us trials and temptations because he knows this world supplies us with plenty. <laughs> we have to learn to overcome them. That's the whole point, learning to rule and reign over all that's in this world and all that's in our soul. Also, we see that sin in the life of a believer can start out small. And I like this because he points out 
that passion, the desire, the longing for something you shouldn't have, isn't sin. It will lead you to sin. <laughs> but usually the sins that Christians find themselves getting into are things that are um, natural needs, part of being human, and they go down the wrong road to meet those needs. But, but God says those desires are not in and of themselves sin. But if we try to meet our own need in our own way, we're more likely to actually fall into sin. And the problem with sin is that it doesn't say small. You see, when he talks about how sin starts, you were longing for something we know we shouldn't have. <laughs> and we go, no, that's not right. That's not God's plan for me. I'm going to set that aside. But it comes back and it comes back. And then they start thinking about it. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. And it starts growing in their imagination. They start seeing themselves participating. That's all the part of getting you to sin. When we've crossed over, and we are in our mind participating, that's sin. It's not where we're supposed to be living. <laughs> but it's easier for you to forgive yourself for something you thought than it is to forgive yourself for something you did. <laughs> because, you know, we're Christians really good. God, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. And we pretty much are okay with going, okay, yeah, God's not going to punish me for that. God forgives me. But if we hurt other people, <laughs> if we do damage to other human beings, we have a hard time forgiving ourselves, which makes us think that somehow we're separated from God, and we're not. We're not ever. The point is, sin has a maturing process. If we nip it in the bud when it's just in our head, <laughs> we can overcome it easily. But if we let it hang around, it can grow and become a habit in our life. And that habit can actually bring us into physical death. And that is what he's talking about. Years ago, I met a tongue-talking, Bible-believing Christian who was addicted to heroin. See, we don't really think that that's a reality. <laughs> we think Christians don't do drugs. So many Christians were given medication by doctors, opiates, which led them down a road of getting illegal drugs. The habit started in a legitimate way. And then when they couldn't no longer get what they had become addicted to, they started getting it in an illegitimate way. That didn't change the fact that she was a tongue-talking, Bible-believing son of God. But she was also a prisoner in her own body. She tried to get clean. She went to rehab. She went to church every time the door was open, and she found herself a mentor to counsel her and help her with this addiction, but she kept being dragged back under the power of drugs by her flesh head. By her flesh head. One of the things that happens in the brain of a person who's addicted to something is your brain says, this high you get, this is more valuable than anything in your life. And that's what you see in the life of an addict. The addict says, Oh, my children, not as important as my high. Now, to the logical mind, to the, our brain, we go, that's ridiculous. How could you do that? But what happens is the power of the drug takes over in their brain, and they lose the ability to value those things they actually used to value. That's what addiction does. Can you be a spirit-filled, Bible-believing, tongue-talking Christian and be addicted to drugs? Yes! 
Is it a good idea? No. <laughs> Can you be made free? Yes. She always thought she was bad because she wasn't strong enough to quit on her own. And as long as you believe you are powerless, you will be. We live out of what we believe. And if we believe we're always bad and condemned, and <laughs> we have to fix ourselves before we come back to God, are you ever going to try to come back to God? You've already discovered you can't do it. You need someone to reach in and pull you out of that power. And Christ is the only power that can. But you have to believe that he can and that he wants to and that he's not mad at you because you got yourself into that position in the first place. It was her flesh head that led her into all of this behavior. It was the effect of the drugs that affected her brain. And a lot of that teaching about how God saw her in her weakness. Her flesh head eventually led her into selling drugs as a means to be able to buy more drugs. <laughs> and she finally ended up in jail. Yep, spirit-filled, Bible-believing, tongue-talking Christian ends up in jail for selling drugs. <laughs> and most of the church looks at that and says, see, she wasn't really a believer. No, she was a believer, a son of God who didn't know her identity or the power that was available within her. She was told she was bad for failing. And as long as you're bad for failing and you keep failing, you're still bad. And if God doesn't accept me as I'm bad, when will he ever accept me? What happens when you send a drug addict to jail is they get free from drugs. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> But if you don't renew your mind to your true identity, you will think you are the failure you always were. And when you think that is who you are, guess what you do? You go back to what you used to do. And that's what she did. And this happens a lot to drug addicts. They go into jail, they get clean, they haven't changed their mind. They don't really know who they are. So much of the church keeps telling them they're bad or they're good only as long as they're not bad. <laughs> and then they go and they get drugs and they think they need the same amount they had before they went into jail and they kill themselves. That is what verse 15 is about. It starts as a passion. She got real drugs from a real doctor who said this was good for you. She learned to take the habit then she had to find a way to get the habit met apart from legitimate means. The sin started to mature and get bigger and bigger and bigger in her life, and it finally overtook her and physically killed her. Satan is always looking for a way to do that in her life. He says, oh, pornography is a way to meet your need. <laughs> what that does is it leads to more and more pornography, all in your head, easy to get forgiven of. But once we start acting out on what we see, it starts to kill our relationships. <laughs> we could lose our job. We could, it gets really big and ugly really quickly, which is why he says, you need to know who you are. You need to know the true identity and, and how God has empowered us and made us to live as sons of God on this earth. We don't have to give in to sin. Not even the little ones. <laughs> we don't have to let little ones grow into big ones <laughs> because we know who we are and that that thing, that 
slave master isn't part of who we are and it shouldn't be part of our life. This young lady who died, she actually had all the power of God inside of her that could have enabled her to overcome the temptation, overcome the addiction. But she really and truly believed that she was powerless. She lived according to her flesh head, her brain, her programming, the way of this world. She lived according to how she felt instead of according to who God made her to be. We all have a flesh head, <laughs> but it's not who we are. It's the mind of the flesh, and it only produces natural thinking based on our past experience and our misinformation and our heart traumas and all that nonsense, all that garbage that lives in our flesh head. That's not who we are. We are not what has happened to us. I am not a victim. We are sons of God empowered to rule and reign on this earth. As believers, we are what Jesus is in our spirit, in the real us. We are sons, holy sons of God, who are fully equipped with the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit and miracle-working power. It's in there <laughs> so that we can rule and reign in life over our own flesh head by faith in God's truth and grace. And God's grace is his absolutely free, loving kindness and acceptance of who we are and his divine enablement within us. James warns believers not to believe the lies that God is behind all the temptations and trials in our life. And he says in verse 16 of chapter one, do not err my beloved brethren, He's, listen up, don't do this. <laughs> don't attribute all of the things that happen in your life that are bad to God. Why? Verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of light, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. In other words, God is good. All the good stuff comes from God. All the bad stuff, <laughs> is from the spirit of this world, which is Satan. And Satan still lies to us the same way he did to Adam and Eve in an effort to get us to believe that what we need is to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In Genesis chapter 3, beginning with verse 4, it says this, But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. <laughs> For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Eve believed the lie that she was not already like God. God told us that he had made them in his very image and likeness. And Satan is going, oh, no, you're not really like God. <laughs> Satan had pointed out to her that she was obviously deficient in wisdom and knowledge. She didn't know everything God knew. And she believed the lie 
that God was keeping good things like wisdom and knowledge away from them to keep them less than himself. Satan said, God's not going to give you this wisdom and knowledge because you'll be like him. She was already like him. God would eventually taught them about good and evil, <laughs> but he didn't want them to actually experience the evil. Then she also believed the lie that she could do something that would make herself more like God, which was to eat of the wrong tree. So she ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thereby activating what we now know as the law of sin and death. Unfortunately, Eve is really a good picture of the church today. A lot of the church today doesn't believe she's like God in her spirit. They think they're still sinners trying to become godly. Backwards. <laughs> the church today often believes she is deficient and broken and less than God. What did God do to us? He put us inside of himself so that we would sit in Christ within the Trinity. Was God trying to make us less than him? Never. He was always saying, come up here and live this kind of life. It's so much better. <laughs> but so much of the church says, I'm broken. I got to be broken for God to accept me. Not in Christ. Your flesh head may be broken, but it can be healed. <laughs> That's not who you are. The church today also believes that God is trying to keep good things away from them. Because if you give you too many blessings, you might go away from God. I've heard that one. God can't give you everything you really want in this world because if you have everything, you won't want him anymore. <laughs> Not true. <laughs> and the church today often believes that she can make herself more like God by studying the knowledge of how to be good and how to avoid evil. Too much of the church sees themselves like old covenant unregenerated human beings who are still stuck under the law of sin and death. But that is not who we are. We are born, literally born of God. It's a reality. It's not a theory. Something really happened to us. <laughs> we have been born free from the law of sin and death. We are now holy and righteous sons of God who understand that we were designed to serve God by ruling and reigning. That's how we're supposed to serve God, by ruling and reigning in righteousness on this earth. We're supposed to bring the kingdom. That's how we're supposed to serve, bringing the kingdom, the good news of the gospel that God's not mad. <laughs> he has made a way to pull us out of the power of sin and death and to redeem everything in our life. But so much of the church says, if you're going to serve God, you got to try to be good and try to shun evil. They're always trying to control their behavior. Is it good to do good? Absolutely. Is it good to shun evil? Absolutely. Will that make you godly? No. God makes us godly. <laughs> God has made us to be just like him. And we will never be able to control our behavior long term unless we change the flesh head. <laughs> and we change and come unto the understanding of what we already truly already are. Their attention is on what they do for God so that he will bless them and not curse them. So much of the church believes if the church would get together and just worship 24-7, then he will bless America. 
<laughs> as if he hasn't already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 1.3. Is it good to spend lots of time worshiping Jesus? Yes. You will feel so much better. <laughs> you will spend time with him. You come away glowing. Yes, it's a good thing. Is God holding back revival because we're not worshiping enough? No, he has poured out his spirit on all flesh. The Holy Spirit is at work drawing people unto himself. But so often it's a change your life and God will accept you. So much of the church thinks they have to earn their father's blessing instead of understanding that he's already given us in Christ. It's ours. We possess it in our spiritual, heavenly inside. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us, hath blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. We are not blessed because of what we do. <laughs> That's old covenant. That's natural thinking. Every religion in the world tells people that they can change themselves by changing their behavior. They can become good if they just practice doing good, which doesn't actually change who and what they are. But many of them believe that if they are good enough, then God will accept them and bless them. But our God, he speaks to the world. He says, your real problem is a whole lot bigger than your behavior. <laughs> you can't save yourself. You can't rescue yourself from the law of sin and death. Your real problem is that you don't have the life of God and righteousness living inside of you. And that's why you're not accessing the blessings. <laughs> you don't know what you could have. And to the church, I believe he's trying to tell them, your problem isn't sin. Your problem is that you don't know who and what you really are. You believe the lying serpent instead of the word of truth, who is Jesus. You believe you're separated from me, your heavenly father, because of your behavior. When in actuality, I am one with you and I have fully equipped you to rule and reign in life through the abundance of grace, the free gift of righteousness, and the one man, Christ Jesus. That's Romans 5, 17. In the Passion Translation, it says this. Death once held us in its grip. And by the blunder of one man, Adam, <laughs> death reigned as king over humanity. But now, how much more are we held in the grip of grace and continue reigning as kings in life, enjoying our regal freedom through the gift of perfect righteousness in the one and only Jesus, the Messiah. In the midst of Satan's lies, Eve also recognized one truth. She recognized that she didn't know everything God knew. <laughs> so she thought she could gain his wisdom and knowledge by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But true wisdom only comes by eating from the tree of life who is, of course, Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 1.30, in the Weymouth translation, it says this. This is Paul speaking to the Corinthians. <laughs> Remember that, Corinthians, right? But you, you Corinthians, and it is all of God's doing, 
are in Christ Jesus. You believed into Jesus. <laughs> yes, you were a mess, but you are also in Christ Jesus. <laughs> he has become for us a wisdom which is from God, consisting of righteousness and sanctification and deliverance. We're usually more accustomed to hearing it in the King James, and it says this. But of him, of God the Father, are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. I like the Weymouth translation of this verse because of the concept that God's wisdom in and through Jesus consists of our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. That is the demonstration of God's wisdom. As you can see, I've bolded and underlined the first time the word and is used in the King James verse. The word and, this word, is a different word from all the other ands in the sentence. And it can denote connectedness with the words following it. And that's why the Weymouth translation uses the words consisting of. It isn't just and, this is added, and, this is added, and, this is added. It is wisdom is demonstrated by God giving us all of that. <laughs> Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So he has made unto us wisdom. And, and it says, and so the wisdom is the righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. In the King James, it sounds like these are just four different things. But what he's trying to say is God's wisdom is demonstrated and shown to be wise when he gives us his righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. That is the demonstration of wisdom. <laughs> and this makes sense because the entire passage before this verse speaks of how foolish the wisdom of this world is because the wisdom of this world is not wise enough to find God in the midst of its knowledge. And any wisdom that excludes God is not actually wise. But God in his wisdom uses the preaching of a crucified Christ and a risen Savior which is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles to actually bring the very power of God to those who will believe. Jesus coming and dying in our place and taking us and all of our sin into the grave and then being raised to life again is the wisdom of God demonstrated. God provided a salvation that includes a perfect righteousness, which is right standing with God based on Jesus's life and death, it also includes sanctification, which is being made holy, set apart from our old life of sin and death and being united to Christ in all of his holiness. And then it includes redemption, Jesus paying the purchase price to set us free from all of our old masters, sin, self, and Satan. This demonstrates the wisdom of God because if man had to earn his salvation and qualify himself for the blessings of God, he would never be able to do it. <laughs> Our salvation is provided all of grace. No one can be good enough long enough to earn anything. <laughs> and no one can be bad enough to be disqualified from grace. The only way for us to get out from underneath the law of sin and death was for someone to love us enough to take our sin into death for us. And the only one who could do that was our sinless Savior, Jesus. The wisdom of this world comes from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That kind of knowledge would tell us that only those who are good and kind, most of the time, 
should be saved. Only those who work hard at honoring God with harsh treatment of their bodies are worthy to receive God's glorious salvation. Only those who tithe on their gross income <laughs> can expect to receive the blessings of heaven. Only those who give to the poor, only those who make pilgrimages, only those who pray long hours a day, only those who deserve it. That's the wisdom of this world. You do to become good. You can't. Doing good doesn't make us good. Jesus makes us good. But the wisdom of God, the love of God, and the power of God showed up on planet Earth in a man named Jesus. And through his life, death, and resurrection, he procured a salvation for all the whosoevers who knew that they could never be good enough. All three of these descriptions of our salvation, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, help us to see what actually happened to us when we believed into Jesus. All three of these descriptions help to provide us with a better understanding of our new identity as righteous, holy sons and bondservants of God. Wisdom begins by understanding what God actually did to us and for us and who he has created and called us to be. We, like Eve, don't know everything God knows either. <laughs> but James tells us that all we have to do is ask and believe we receive when we pray. James 1, verse 5. If any of you needs wisdom to know what you should do, everybody. <laughs> and he's speaking specifically to people who are going through persecution, times of trials and temptations. If any of you needs wisdom to know what you should do, you should ask God. <laughs> <laughs> you should ask God. Why? Because he will give it to you. God is generous to everyone and doesn't find fault with them. God already knows we don't know everything. So he's not surprised by our lack of knowledge or, and or wisdom. So he's always willing to give us the knowledge and wisdom we need for free. No begging required. For we are sons and bond servants of God and God as our father and Jesus as our master have taken the responsibility to provide us with everything we need for life and godliness all the days of our life. But, like Eve, we too can sometimes seek wisdom from the wrong source. James tells us about this in chapter 3. We're going to begin by jumping into the middle <laughs> of chapter 3. <laughs> We're going to start with verse 9, where James is talking about the power of the tongue and the source of the message. James 3, verse 9, in the Passion Translation. We use our tongue to praise God, our Father, and then turn around and curse a person who was made in his very image. Out of the same mouth, we pour out words of praise one minute and curses the next. My brothers and sisters, this should never be. <laughs> Would you look for olives hanging on a fig tree or go to pick figs from a grapevine? Is it possible that fresh and bitter water can flow out of the same spring? So neither can a bitter spring produce fresh water. James here is telling his audience that they need to know the source of what they say. He tells them that they can praise God one minute and curse God the next, but those words come from two different sources normally. <laughs> we have two different sources we can pull from. We can pull from our spirit man. We have the very mind of Christ, 
or we can pull from our flesh head. <laughs> the stuff where all the mis and wrong information is. We all have a flesh head, but a flesh head is not who we are. We are sons and bondservants of God. We know our Father has already granted us everything we need for life and godliness. But our flesh head <laughs> is full of all kinds of wrong natural and carnal thinking. And we've appropriated over time wrong teachings, wrong understandings, wrong pictures of who God and Jesus and we really are. And when we forget who we really are and what we actually have available to us, our flesh head can show up and show off his ugly face and spout some ugly words. <laughs> yep, flesh head is ugly, always ugly. James also infers that they also need to know if they actually have a source of fresh, sweet water. In other words, the Holy Spirit. Because his original audience was primarily Jewish, they could praise God and curse man all from their natural carnal thinking, even if they didn't have the source of sweet water. So he says, for believers, we've got two sources. We can pull from the carnal thinking, or we can pull from who we really are, our true identity. Someone who's not saved, that's his point. He's, do you have two sources? <laughs> do you have the Holy Spirit? Are you a son of God? That's really his point. So then James continues to direct his readers to the source of their wisdom. You see here he says, look at your source of what comes out of your mouth. Is it coming from the spirit or is it coming from the carnal man? So then he goes into wisdom. What wisdom are you pulling from? Verse 13, if you consider yourself to be wise and one who understands the ways of God, advertise it with a beautiful, fruitful life guided by wisdom's gentleness. Never brag or boast about what you've done and you'll prove that you are truly wise. Those who brag and boast are those who do not know the truth in their heart that they are actually sons of God, dearly loved, supremely valued, and completely perfect in their spirit. And we know that because those who brag and boast are trying to make themselves important in the eyes of others. Sons of God already know how important they are to God. So if we're pulling from our spirit man and the truth of our true identity, Boasting and bragging doesn't come from that. It would only come from the flesh. Verse 13. But if there is bitter jealousy or competition hiding in your heart, then don't deny it and try to compensate for it by boasting and being phony. For that has nothing to do with God's heavenly wisdom, but can best be described as the wisdom of this world, both selfish and devilish. That's flesh head. <laughs> in our flesh head, we can have pitiful little identities based on all kinds of lies from our past and from Satan. Satan loves to tell us that we are nothing and nobody. He loves to tell us that we're worthless and that we're failures and that God is mad at us. Nobody loves you. You might as well go eat worms <laughs> and will never accomplish anything. In other words, all kinds of junk. <laughs> it's not the truth. The truth is, though, that we will live out of those lies in our life if we don't see ourselves for who God has made us to be. Like the young lady who, who ended up dying from an overdose. She believed she was powerless. Verse 16. So, wherever jealousy and selfish are uncovered, you will also find many troubles and every kind of meanness. Boy, that's true. Because that's of the carnal realm. If I know I'm a son of God, and a bondservant of God. God has my back every day of my life. He has given me everything I need for life and godliness. He's given me every spiritual gift, every spiritual blessing. What do I have to be jealous of? 
nothing. I can have all of that what God has and all that God is. I have no reason to be jealous of somebody else's blessing or gifting. As a son of God, I don't have to fear not having enough, so I don't have to worry about being selfish. As a bondservant of God, I know my good master has already provided everything I'm going to need for the rest of my life and into eternity. I might need to ask my father for the wisdom I need to walk out those things in my life. But when I know who and what I am, jealousy and selfishness become completely unnecessary. I have no use of them. <laughs> Verse 17. But the wisdom from above is always pure, filled with peace, considerate, and teachable. It is filled with love and never displays prejudice or hypocrisy in any form. Verse 18. And it always bears the beautiful harvest of righteousness. In other words, who we are on the inside shows up on the outside. Good seeds of wisdom's fruit will be planted with peaceful acts by those who cherish making peace. One of the definitions of wisdom is the right use or exercise of knowledge. But in order to use and exercise knowledge correctly, you first need to know you have the correct knowledge. The world says we have plenty of knowledge, but their knowledge and wisdom is lacking because there is no God in that. And they cannot find God through their knowledge. We, through Christ, through the word, have correct knowledge, one of who God is, what he's really like, and what he has done to us, through us, and for us. In order to have wisdom, you have to have correct knowledge. And if you think you are a sinner who is helpless and pitiful, that's incorrect knowledge. Therefore, you cannot get the wisdom of God in that knowledge. <laughs> we have to have the truth of who God is, who Jesus is, and who we are, and what we are. It changes everything. Then wisdom becomes our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. We live out of that. That's what these word pictures do. They help to give us a correct knowledge. If we don't know what it means, that we are literally and truly born of God, then we won't live like we're born of God. If we don't understand that God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ have already paid the purchase price to redeem me out of the slave market and have already set me free from all the former masters of sin, self, and Satan, then I would be inclined to let the voices of those former masters, which are still in my flesh head, boss me around and tell me lies about who and what it says I am. It matters what we believe. It matters that we understand our true identity. The wisdom of God in our lives really begins with understanding who God really is, who Jesus really is, and who we really are in relationship with them. James was a faithful Jew. In fact, he was a very religious man. But when Jesus revealed his true identity to James, everything in James's life changed. His God had always been the God of the Jews, but now he was the God and father of Jesus, his brother. <laughs> and not only was he the father of his brother, but he was the father of the whole world of not only Jews, but Gentiles. <laughs> Jesus had always been his brother, 
But now Jesus was the Son of God and his very own kinsman and redeemer. James had always been a very good Jew, but now all of a sudden he's something called a Christian, <laughs> something called a Son of God, something called a bondservant of both God and Jesus. Everything in James's life changed when he recognized Jesus' true identity. And so it is for us also when we see the truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, then we can see the truth of who our God our Father really is. And if we can see who God our Father really is, we can begin to really understand and see who we really are since we have been literally born of God. We are sons of God. That's our true identity. Amen? Father God, I thank you for the truth of your word. Father God, I ask that you renew our mind to the truth of what we really are. We are not just mere human beings. Even Paul said, stop acting like you're a mere human being. You're a son of God, full of power and glory and love. Understand who God has created you to be, what he has done to you. We are not in the process of becoming godly. We're in the process of understanding we already are. We're not in the process of becoming powerful. We're in the process of understanding that we already are. We're not in the process of getting free. We're in the process of understanding that we already are. We're free from the old masters. We're free from the power and, of sin and death. We're free from flesh and sin and Satan. We're free. The life you offer us is real life. We desire to serve you through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father God, that we get to serve you by being sons, by taking responsibility for our flesh, <laughs> taking responsibility for our earth. You've got so much in store for us. But for us to step into it, we have to renew our minds to what and who we really are and what and who you really are. You are good, and you are only good. And you are love, and you are only love. And we have been made in your image. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.